Okay. Um, so one of the core revolutionary ideas of Hasidus and we should always be cautious whenever we hear the term revolutionary in the context of Orthodox Judaism because if it's really revolutionary then it's not Orthodox Judaism but setting that interesting question aside one of the revolutionary ideas is the absolute omnipresence of God omnipresence means that he is present everywhere and so the idea of omnipresence of God is God, that God is present everywhere. Now, there are many ways to think of God being present everywhere. And in Hasidus, the idea that God is present everywhere is taken to an absolute extreme. And when I mean absolute extreme, um, it leaves no room for God to be any more omnipresent. Okay. In other words... There are certain um, structures that we have to abide by. For instance, God did create the world. God and the world are not synonymous. He is the creator. The world was created by him. Right? There are certain basic things in Judaism. Good is good. Evil is evil. Okay? But within whatever, within that structure, there are different ways of conceiving God's um, omnipresence. And Hasidus takes it to the limit. Okay? So... What that would mean is, my favorite example, a pitcher of water. What am I holding? My pitcher of water, right? I'm holding a pitcher of water, yes? If God is omnipresent, then he is just as present as the pitcher of water, right? And he's just as present where the pitcher of water is. Which means, if I'm holding, if, if, I am holding the pitcher of water, then I am in some sense... Holy God. Okay. Without your hand also. Your hand. <laughs> right. It's safer when you think about the picture, right? Okay. I mean, God is holding God. What about also the idea? One second. One second. This is why we're going to learn rather than just freely speculating. Okay? Okay. Now, I want to start how I said, right? If God is omnipresent, absolutely, means as much as the picture is present... God is present no less than that. And God is present where the pitcher is present. So if the pitcher's being present here is what enables me to hold the pitcher, then by that same logic, by holding the pitcher, I'm also in some, in some sense holding God. Disturbing, yes? Should be. You can see why some people thought Hasidus would be heresy, hope, right? Judaism, we have this thing about like not associating God with his creations. Right? We don't worship the sun and the moon and the stars much less the pitcher of water in your hand. Okay. So, th this discussion centers around, generally in Hasidus, um, several f phrases, some are verses, some are statements of the sages, especially found in the Zohar. We're going to focus on one phrase in the Zohar specifically. The Zohar says, and I'm going to give you the whole phrase, and then we're going to, I'm going to translate, and then we're going to focus on the part that's relevant for our discussion. The phrase is Ihu Saiviv Kalalmin, which literally means he surrounds the worlds. Ihu Mamali Kalalmin. He fills the worlds. Okay? So this is the he is referring to God, describing God having two kinds of relationship with the world, with the created reality. One is that he surrounds the created reality, another that he 
fills the created reality. Right? Now, the idea that Hashem, God, fills the created reality was called Mamale Kol Almin. So in, in Hasidus, what ends up happening is things become a shorthand. Like the phrase in the Zohar is, a, is an actual full sentence. He fills the worlds. Ihu Mamale Kol this gets shortened sometimes to just memale kalamen as a noun, which, right, which doesn't really make sense because it's a, it's a verb, right? He fills, and he just, so fills the worlds is not a noun, right? But in Hasidic, Hasidus often gets shortened to treating it as a noun, and what it means is the relationship of God to the world in where he fills the world, and then sometimes that gets even reduced to just a single word memale, which is again a verb, but is treated as a noun. So we'll say memale, meaning fills, which is a verb, but we mean is the way in which God relates to the world by filling it. Okay. So what that basically means is that God's relationship to created reality is like that created reality is a clee, is a vessel for God. And I refer you to yesterday's class where we discussed the idea of a clee or a vessel. Now, what is important to note and we're just going to note this and then move on because this is setting up the contrast for the point of the class. Um, something cannot be a vessel for something that it cannot contain, right? Because that's what being a vessel is. And therefore, there is some notion of, of um, compatibility, comparableness between the vessel and what it contains. Now, the created reality every creation is limited. Okay, I want to just for a moment to define what I mean by limited, okay? People often don't know what we mean by limited. What does limited mean? Not infinite. No, I, I don't... No, limited basically means you can't. It's very important. When you think of chassidus, when we think of things being limited, the most basic understanding of limited is that you can't. For instance, can you be over here and at home at the same time? So you're limited. Can you fly? No. Okay. Can you um, feel pain? Yes. But, are, but is there a degree at which the pain is too intense and you would shut down? Mm-hmm. So you are limited, right? Limitations are what you cannot do. That makes sense? Right? So think about like literally a, a border and you're not allowed to cross the border, but the border is not being imposed from without. It's... it's intrinsic to your being. Okay, that's what it means to be limited and all creations are limited. Okay, and God is? Unlimited. Unlimited. What does that mean? There's nothing. Right? There's nothing he can't do. Right, there's no, there's no thing. Well, if you bring up anything, you say, well, is somehow God prohibited from that, restricted from that, and the answer is going to be no. Okay? That's just basic idea. Okay. Then that means the vessel also has to be unlimited. What? Well, actually, the reverse. What that would mean is if that if 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 the if Mamali Kalam and God filling created reality it's a means of God. correct that God would have to present a limited version of Himself because that's the only thing that could be contained by the created reality. Okay. That is a discussion for another time. Okay. The notion that there is a I mean. If it's limited, it's not a, it's, how is it in any way an authentic um, presentation of God? In other words, if God is presenting himself, it should be authentic. And if he's presenting himself other than he is, then it's not a presentation of God. So there is a kind of um, something 
and I'm using this word again intentionally, paradoxical, and it's the same idea necessitates opposites, of a limit, God presenting himself in a limited manner. And that's not today's discussion. But if God fills the world, the prerequisite to that is God would have to present himself in a limited manner such that creations could in fact contain some sense of God. Okay? We are going to be focusing on the other idea, which is that God surrounds the world. Okay? And what we need to know for starters is that if we speak about sovev or surrounding the world, that is as opposed to filling the world, meaning we're talking about God having a relationship with creation, where creation is not a kli. Creation does not contain any kind of sense of God. So there's two ways God presents himself or relates to his creation. One, a limited version of himself. Again, big question what that means. That can be contained in some sense by his creation. And then a sense of him which cannot be contained by the creation. Okay? And so we would think of Mimalikam and God filling the world as a limited version of God, if you can say such a thing. And Soviv and so would be unlimited, or God more or less as he is unto himself, right? An unmodified version of God. Okay, good. So now, when I say that God is omnipresent, right? God is present in everything. And the absolute sense, so back to my picture, which version should I be referring to? Am I referring to God as he presents himself in a limited manner that the world can contain, or God as he truly is unto himself in an unlimited sense? In what sense is God here to the same degree that the picture is here? Oh, limited. The limited one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wrong. No, Right. The purpose of today's class is that the omnipresence of God is that in all of his unlimited being, he is present in the same way that the picture is present. And why not Mimali? Like, why is only that one? For the, today's class, what I want to do is I want to emphasize that this is the more controversial and novel idea. To say that will bracket the question of how there could be a limited presentation of God. But if we say there's a limited presentation of God, and that's what accounts for his omnipresence, then he's not absolutely omnipresent. He's he's present everywhere, but only in a limited sense, because it's a limited version of... So it's not that Mamali isn't there. That's right. But if I want to explain the absolute radical omnipresence of God, then I need to say... That they sovet, right? That God, not in any kind of limited presentation of himself, in his full being, is present in this picture that I am holding to the same degree that the picture is present. So I am now holding the infinite being of God between my hands. Right? You can see why Hasidus was treated radically. Right? Don't, don't start bowing down to the picture, please. Okay. Good? Okay. So... In Hasidus, it says that soivev, which is the word again the Zohar uses, which means to surround, um, like um, um, a sivivon is, a, is a, a dreidel, a top, because it spins, it goes around, okay? So a sivuv means to go around something like that, right? Okay? And it takes that word soivev and gives it um, a phrase which is meant to be a synonym. And that phrase in Hebrew is called makif milamayla. So makif milamayla is a synonym for sovev. Sovev literally means to surround. 
like to go around something. Okay. And makif milamila literally means to encompass, to envelop from above. And you get words for like birds circling their prey too. It could be, yeah, right. So, the, so we're going to focus the rest of the class on these two words, makif, which means it envelops, it encompasses, milamila, from above. So what is the God in his unlimited being's relationship with my picture? He is encompassing it from above. Now, does encompassing sound like it is present in the same sense as the thing it's encompassing, right? Mm-hmm. Encompassing means it's some kind of outside of it. It's external to it. So, right, and above means it's located in some other place. So this is very difficult if we say that God's infinite being is encompassing the picture from above to say that God is present to the same degree as the picture in the very space of reality that the picture occupies, right? Those seems to be contradictory things. And therefore, Chassidus, spends a lot of time defining what we mean when we say enveloping makif and what we mean milamaila from above in the context of God. So what we need to do now is we need to understand um, that these terms, we need to kind of give them a kind of rigorous philosophical definition and then we need to understand how those definitions change or, or have to be recontextualized when we apply them to God um, and what we're going to end up with is that yes the infinite being of God is just as present as the picture in the very place that the picture occupies good and again it's safe to talk about the picture start talking about yourself what happens and you call yourself God. No, no, that's not what happens. Then you're not a person. Right. Then what happens is you don't start the calling yourself God. You start questioning your own being. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's in the right. beginning. Oh. I said, and then we just don't exist. <laughs> you have to somehow reconcile your existence with with fact that the infinite being of God is there, and so that would have to cause you to recontextualize your own existence radically. Rather than yeah, yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, you know. That's a different... That's a whole different thing. So all we're going to get to is the place that prompts that deep existential crisis, which, by the way, I would just like to end, I would just like to end the existential crisis. So we're going to create the basis of the crisis, and I'll tell you the solution to the crisis. Okay. The, I'm not telling you, like, all the details, but basically it works like this. If you take everything that we're learning in this class and you get it and you understand it and you reflect upon it and you're sufficiently sensitive and refined so that it's not like theoretical abstract ideas and it actually starts to affect your sense of yourself and reality, you enter into a deep existential crisis, right? Because if, you know, the infinite being God is literally present in the space that I exist, then like where like how do I where, like where do I like what sense am I mean what sense do I have my own distinct existence right and you have a serious existential crisis, um, and, and the only solution to that, and I'm not going to say how this is a solution, but what this teaches the solution to this, no, the 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 solution to that crisis the thing that brings that crisis to resolution, is a a 
absolute investment of yourself into Jewish practice. I'm not going to explain to you how. So the kind of Hasidic model in this sense is as follows. You recognize this kind of ultimate truth. This completely destroys any possibility for you to live a life. And the only way to actually live a life is that there's nothing left of you other than your Judaism. And somehow that's the livable. Well, that makes sense. It does make sense. Some kind of, I'm just not going to explain it. How is that healthy? Who said it has to be healthy? I didn't say that. I'm just telling you like that. That's, that's you know. So the, the, there's a kind of this, this theme in a lot of Hasidus. Like if you contemplate the truth of God and then you, you, you end up with this kind of deep sense of like being disturbed. Some call it yearning. You can call it fear. Right? There's different aspects to it, different emotional aspects to it. And then the only way to kind of um, find any sort of solace and peace that you can actually live with is when your entire life... Um, I'm using the word from yesterday, collapses into your Judaism. And, and that would mean your Judaism has to permeate every fiber of your being, not just like dry ritual practice. But anyway, so that's why this is, that's why this is, this is a, a path to Judaism and not just like random like existential inquiry or stuff. And in general, Hasidim were highly suspicious of people that were engaged in, the, in, in just like the philosophizing about this if it wasn't leading to some kind of movement in like practice of and relationship to the importance of Judaism. Um, and arguably one other historical note before we get into the actual thing is that much of the initial antagonism towards Hasidus was because of an, a setting aside like theological distinctions was because of a, a very real concern that perhaps the opposite conclusion would be drawn, right? Is that if somehow like I enter this existential crisis and I devalue my existence, then I devalue the importance of obeying halacha. And that, and, and by the way, that's a sign that you didn't get it. But if you, but if if these ideas were, were were understood slightly differently and approached differently and from a different perspective, they could be warped into that conclusion, and that would obviously be very bad and heresy. We wouldn't want that, and that's not Chassidus. And like so, nihilism. Um, it, it could have a nihilist. It doesn't have to be nihilism. It could be nihilism. It could be a bunch of other stuff. But the point is that when they started to see that these ideas were not leading to kind of a mass abandonment of Jewish practice, but in the contrary, the opposite, then a large amount of the antagonism died down. Disagreement remained, but antagonism died down. Okay, let us get started. Okay, so um, what do we mean when we say that something is makif? And by makif, we say encompassing, in Hasidus, um, we mean... to negate two different things, okay? We first mean to negate that something is actually present, something is actually there, okay? Um, what do I mean by that? If you would like something, okay, and it's not here, what do you have to do? You have to travel, you have to go somewhere else to get it. That makes sense? Okay. Um, so physically, you know, if, if something is physically in another location, I have to physically go there, right? Um, but we can think of that not just in terms of physical location. We can also think of that in terms of kind of modes of existence, okay? If you are looking around um, for love, like, like literally looking, you take out your binoculars, you go looking for love, you take it, there's a zebra and there's a lion, but you don't, will you ever find love that way? No. No, why not? 
because you can't look at love. Love doesn't exist on that, in that mode, in that way of being, right? You would have to move to a different aspect of reality, right? How to write a social, emotional sense, and there, hopefully, you'll find love. Make sense? Okay. Um, can you find rationality in your um, close relationships with other people? Like if you have like a close relationship, a romantic relationship, a deep friendship, right? Can you find rationality there? Like real rationality? Yes. I would say no. That's so deep. There's like pragmatic benefits to like relational ties there. That's true. Watch what happens when you try to be, have, focus on the pragmatic benefits of engaging in a relationship. Watch what happens to that relationship as you enter a rational approach because to your relationship. The relationship slowly dissolves or radically dissolves depending on how quickly you do that. In other words, there's, in other words like this, Rather, there's different elements of rationality. You, you, you picked one kind of rationality. There's a kind of rationality where I look at things and I make a judgment call, are these to my benefit or not? Mm-hmm. And if they are, then I pursue them, and if not, then I avoid them. Now, the thing is, that kind of rationality rests on a sense of being where you are an individual, your welfare is of the utmost concern, and everything else gains its value by the benefit that it contributes to yourself. Now, economically, like for capitalism, it might not be a bad thing, right? Um, and, but the thing is, like r- the real deep bonds that we have, they, they operate on a very different, a different mode of what it is to be a human being. A human being is defined by their belonging. And the thing is conditional belonging is not belonging. <laughs> Make sense? So if I'm engaging with somebody in that kind of rational sense, right? As that, as that becomes something that I, I look for more and more in how I engage and how I live, what ends up happening is I'm moving my own being away from a different sense of my humanity, a kind of belonging sense of humanity, which might be a good thing, might be a bad thing. Like, I mean, maybe when you go to work, maybe you should do that because maybe you shouldn't feel like, you, you know, this is your family, this is your family right? Yeah. But then the other thing, it might be when your family, you might not want to do it that way. Right? But there's the other, I was actually referring to a different aspect of rationality, um, which is the idea that things are important because of kind of universal truths and they're not localized to any particular, right? Like when we speak about like two plus two equals four, right? That has nothing to do with me or you, right? Or even if we speak about something like murder is wrong, a kind of moral truth, right? It has nothing to do with me or to you, right? And so I have to erase the notion of particularity, the notion of being grounded in, as, a, as an individual at all to enter that kind of mindset. Kind of that kind of, what they nowadays maybe call like academic objectivity or something, whatever. Makes sense? But there's these different planes and modes of being and like certain things just don't exist in certain planes and if you want to find them, you want to get them, you want to make those things part of your life, you're going to have to live on those planes. You know, and maybe you can live on multiple planes and maybe you can't, but you can't find things on the wrong plane. That makes sense? So, now, if I'm a rational being, yeah, in all senses of the word rational being, right, I cannot like actually be living as a rational being in my deep 
family relationships, right? That's just like, you, you, it doesn't work. Like you can't have a, 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 a real relationship of a marriage or a real relationship of parent to child or deep friendships and be living that as a rational being. But now here's the thing. As much as my rational being is like in some other space or some other part of, part of me, does that mean the rationality is irrelevant? And that's the other thing. So makif both negates, both means that it's not here, but it also means that it's still relevant. It still has an impact. It still has an influence. Okay? So in other words, I wouldn't say that rationality is makif with regard to the picture. Why not? I mean, rationality is somewhere beyond the picture, right? The picture is not existing in the plane of, it's not a rational being, right? There's no rationality in the picture. It's not, a, it's, not, you know, it's not making pragmatic choice about what's to its benefit. It's not engaging with universal truths, right? It's not trying to make sense of the intelligible you know, abstractions of reality. Those are not, like, none of those things are part of the picture, right? But they also don't play a role in the picture at all. It's not, so, right? Whereas even when I do something as simple um, as moving around in the physical world, does my rationality have an influence on how I go about that? Does my rationality have an influence on the deep friendships that I have? Sure. And by the way, the reverse is true, right? If I am in trying to engage in like deep philosophical inquiry, might my emotions have an effect even though I'm not in an emotional place, right? So when something is not here but is having an effect on here, we call that makif. That makes sense? So it's very intuitive to think of God as makif. And I can be using the Hebrew word, I want you to think of it as a technical term, okay? Does God run the world? Can you bump into God in the middle of the shuk? So it sounds like God's not part in the world, it's not here, but he's certainly relevant to what's going on here, and so he is intuitively here. here. He's makif. Makif means not here, but having an effect on here. Make sense? Okay. Good? Okay. Um, let's use a human example of makif. Um, some people have the experience where they grow up not religious and then they become religious, yes? yes. Why? Um, the question is, even if you experience a godly moment, how long does that last? And then what, the rest of your life? I mean, it's a, lot of, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a long process to like go from a non-religious upbringing to then live as a religious Jew, right? So like, why? Because they want it again, or they feel like it's missing without it. I feel like you're like searching for like deeper meaning in your life. Okay, that could be. Or something happens where you realize that there's something fundamentally different about life. Mm-hmm. That being religious actually. Serious. That could be. Any other reasons? Someone tells you to. Someone tells you to. Experience like an ultimate truth of something. Or you keep Shabbos ones. Keep Shabbos ones. Okay, so here's what Chassidah says. Chassidah says is because your soul made you do it. Because your soul is makif. But your soul is makif. And because your soul is makif, 
you start looking for things within your own experience because you're trying to find something within your experience to explain your choices rather than looking for something outside of your experiences, right? That's because the soul is inside. Right, the soul soul that causes a person to do tshuva. I'm setting aside questions of free will right now. That's a different topic. We have questions and you can ask me about that. But the soul that causes a person to do tshuva is not part of the person's experience. And so when you go back and try and figure out why did I do what I do, you look for things where? Within your experience. Let me give you an example of this in, in a different context. We'll go back. Um, if you were to ask like a religious Jew who is truly, truly devout, right? Why does it rain? Why is there a war? Why is there peace? Hashem, right? But then if you ask the scientist, they wouldn't accept that as an answer. Why not? And I want to let's give the scientist a lot of credit, okay? Let's, let's not treat the scientist as dumb or immature. Why wouldn't the scientist give that answer? There are like rational explanations for why things happen. Mm-hmm. They're, they're devoting their whole life to finding out things like that. You're, you're getting it. The rational thing is not that God can also be rational. There's rational, uh, you, can, you can make those, all, those explanations also rational. That's not really the difference. Proof being, for the vast majority of, of Western civilization, um, those two things were thought to be very compatible. The reason why the scientist doesn't accept it is not because of it's that. It's because they're building on proof outside of themselves instead of like looking inward. Like the soul is more of an inward um, understanding. I don't know about the soul right now. Oh, okay, God. Fine, but it's, it's, it's going outside of yourself and sorting else. proof that's outside. It's like not having a bias. And I want, I want to raise the rule of the bias. Like, the, I, I want, like the, the scientist is actually right. I want to understand, the scientist is right. There's a difference between right and incomplete. The scientist rejects that as an answer. They're correct. Wait, Kyle, what did you say? You said you were The scientist is looking for an explanation of things that are here. How does what is here explain what is here? It's here. In other words, like this, right? If there's a fire, that's here in the world. How does what is here in the world explain how there is a... Is that a legitimate thing to ask? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's, it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different question, right? Then in what ways is what's here being affected by what's not here? That's a very different kind of question, right? It's a different why and how. It's a totally different why and how, which is why they're not actually mutually exclusive. So now let's go back to a person doing tshuva, right? I'm using that as an example, but I don't know, might be relevant. Um, if, you, if someone asks you why you did something, your intuitive way you, you hear the question and try to answer it is like the scientist or like the religious person? Scientist. Like the scientist. You start looking within your experience of life for the things that explain how you've lived your life, mm-hmm. Right? And what Hasidus is saying, there's actually another answer, which is there are things outside of your experience of life which are having a major impact. Okay? And that's what we say in Hasidus that the soul really is makif. If, if you do experience any of the soul, it is a limited presentation of the soul to which you have be- can become somewhat of a cleave for. And then it's mamali. And then it's mamali, right? But the soul itself is actually makif. Okay, so the, the main way in which our godly soul 
is part of our lives is that it's not actually part of our lived experience at all. It is simply affecting us. So because it's not here within our lived experience, but it is still affecting our lived experience, the term for that is makif. Good? So it's quite intuitive to think of God's infinite being as being makif. Okay. Okay, so now we're going to talk about um, dancing. You'll see why in a second. And I mean, like, not Hasidic dancing. Okay. I mean, like, um, you know, really expert choreographed dancing. Like the kind you have to, like, learn and go to school for years and practice, right? That kind of dancing. Um, Now, when... Dancing involves a lot of intellect, a lot, a lot of the intellectual faculties of the person. Okay? Um, whether they're consciously thinking about it in abstractions or not is beside the point, right? But a choreographer, when they're coming up with dance, right, they are trying to figure out how they can use, we're going to focus specifically on, 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 uh, on the movement of the feet, but how you can use the movements of the feet of the person, right, to create um, a kind of an experience and convey a kind of meaning, right? And also how that can be implemented in practice, right? So the, the mind is, the mind of the choreographer is, 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 is juggling physiology, um, basic physics, culture, Humanity, right? All those things are being played around and formulated in some kind of coherent manner to, for the choreographer to come up with, you know, a dance that people will actually want to do and see and will, will, will have a serious impact, right? And then the dancer obviously has to be able to, you know, if they're a really good dancer, right, where they're not just like, they're not just, you know, technically going through the motions, right? They have to really get that in some way and that happens in their mind, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, 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 of mental activity going into dancing. Now, is any of that mental activity happening in the feet? No. But does that mental activity affect the feet, yeah. ultimately? Yeah, right? And so the dancer, right, the, 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 what the mind of the choreographer and whatever degree that's, that's then transmitted to the mind of the dancer is makif over the feet of the dancer. That makes sense? Okay. Now, here's the thing. Why is it that way? Why is it that way? As opposed to what? It being in the feet? As opposed to being in the feet. Okay. Why can't I do all that in the feet? Because our brain sends signals. Why can't I be a choreographer with my feet instead of using my brain? Because it's beyond the feet's capabilities to have mental... Like... That, that seems reasonable, right? Yeah. Right? Whatever it is of the soul, right... Um, you know, that, that enables the choreographer to do all of that stuff, right? It can't do that in the feet because the feet don't have the capacity. The feet are too, wait for it, limited, right? They have it in, they're incapable, right? Okay, but here's the thing. It's not only the feet that are incapable. The brain is incapable. No, not the brain. The mind is incapable because what you're saying is the feet are incapable of servicing the mind and the mind is incapable of doing this activity without... I'm talking about the choreography part. The, 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 the mind wants to come up with a dance. 
That's a, that's, a, that's a deep mental activity. Can the mind do that with the feet? It can't do that with the feet. It has to do that with the brain, right? That's because the, the feet are limited, right? But it's also because the mind is limited. If the mind wasn't limited, the mind could do it with the feet. With the feet. Mm-hmm. What's the mind different from the brain? The brain is... You want to hear a cool story? Sure. My oldest son, when he was around seven... No, older. I'm saying eight or nine-ish, something like that. Maybe ten, but I think eight or nine. He once told me that our brain, some, some sentence, which had, this is all in Hebrew, which had something along the phrase, of, phrase like the brain thinks. And I said, brains don't think. And he says, yes, they do. And I said, no, they don't. And he says, and I say to him, well, do you even know what a brain is? And he says, yeah, it's here. I said, I know you know where it is. I said, do you know what it is? And he thought for a minute, he's like, I don't actually know what a brain is. So I said, let me show you a picture of a brain. Uh, it's a piece of meat. And I showed him a picture of a human brain. Then I showed him a picture of a cow brain. Then I showed him a picture of people eating cow brains. It's a piece of meat. It's like a yeah, it's a real story. Cool. How it's old a, is he now? Now he's 15. Um, so a piece of meat. And so he's like, well, so then why do people, like, he says, well, then why do people say you think with your brain? Because meat can't think. That doesn't make any sense. And he said, right, the soul thinks. So then what's with the brain? I said, well, you write using the pen, right? But the pen isn't writing, right? You pick up the pen and use it, right? It's a tool, right? So in an analogous way, it's not exactly the same. The mind uses the brain to think. And so we can associate thinking with the brain and damage in the brain can affect thinking, but the thinking is not a product of the brain. It's a product of this other thing called the mind, which is an aspect of the soul. It's not the totality of the soul. It's an aspect of the soul. And he's like, well, I mean, and he thinks about this. He's like, well, then how can there be atheists? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I mean, if your, if your brain is meat, then obviously you have a soul. If obviously you have a soul, well, then obviously there's something more to the world than just the world. So there has to be God. And I said, you have a point. <laughs> Um, that was the end of that discussion. Um, yes, so your mind is limited. So, was that your mind is limited? Because if your mind was not limited, was it? What? Isn't it the soul that's limited though? Well, that goes back to we have multiple souls, and we just mentioned the fact that there's the soul itself and the limited manifestation of the soul, of which the mind might be the main part. Yeah, right, okay. So your mind is for sure limited. And, because and one of the limitations of your mind is that if your mind is going to get anything done in the physical world, it needs a brain to do it. And it needs, and it's, and it's, and it can't use a brain. It has to use a brain. And there, right, for instance, my ability to play piano is limited both in my actual ability and the need for a yeah. piano. And the quality of the piano will affect the piano playing just as much as my ability, which is, by the way, non existent. I can't play the <laughs> piano. Um, but I also can't play because there's no piano here, right? Or if the piano's out of tune, right? Make sense? So, Yes, a limited being can be makif in the, in, the, in, the, in the literal sense of, of how we use the term because it needs to be where it can be to fully function and only then can its influence radiate out to others, right? That makes sense? The mind has to do the choreographing itself and it has to do that in the brain because that's the only place it can function. And then once that's done, that can have some kind of influence on the feet. But now what a way to start with God? God is what? He's not limited? If he's not limited, so does he need to be in a particular place or plane of reality to in order to do things? So if God, I don't know, let's say, let's, if, if God wanted to, I don't know, be a choreographer, would he need a brain in order to do it? 
so he could do it inside the feet if he wanted. Uh, so then why would we call anything that God is as makif? Right? In other words, the notion of makif, as we understand it, doesn't seem applicable to God because it rests on a foundation of God, of, of the thing which is makif being limited. It cannot be on the thing that is, it cannot be present in the thing that's affecting because it, it wouldn't be able to function. It has to be beyond or outside of it. It functions on its terms and then its influence can radiate onwards. Right? The sun has to be makif over the earth for a very simple reason, um, that if the earth is to be preserved, I'm going to focus it the way, I'm going to focus it the other way around, okay? Let's take the earth as a fixed thing. If the earth is to be preserved and you try to bring the sun to the earth, then the sun will have to become much smaller and less hot in order for it to be on the earth, right? And once it's smaller and less hot, guess what it's not doing? It's not being the sun anymore. So in order for the sun to be the sun, it has to be far away. And only when it's being the sun can it now have its effect on us. So the sun is makif. See how that works? Okay. God cannot be by that definition makif. So why is he called makif? So makif is limited? Is that makif in its literal sense is limited. Because it, it, the thing is having an influence on something where it's not. But why isn't, the, why isn't, it, why isn't it here? Why does it have to be over there? And the answer is because it can't function over here. Over here doesn't, doesn't allow it to, to, to be itself, to do itself, to, right? So the question is, why is God makif? So, is- so the question is, how is it appropriate to call God makif if the concept of makif presupposes that the thing which is makif is, is, limited. is limited. And the answer oh, is... So why is there a No, no, different question, different question. And the answer is that we are referring to the subjective experience of the creations. If something is affecting you, but you cannot locate it within your reality, to you it seems to be makif. So in the other this. Does God have to be in some other divine heavenly plane like Lahavdal, like the, uh, the Greeks thought about their gods and have to be on Mount Olympus? Like God is in some like higher heavenly plane because like, he can't function in this physical world? No. God, you know, God, can, God can be God here just as well. So God runs the world, God influences the world, and God doesn't have to be somewhere else to be God. So God is influencing the world, not from remotely, not the way our mind influences our feet, but God is influencing the world because God is here. So then why do we call him Makif? Because when you walk down the shuk, it's not like you're going to find God, right? All you end up finding is his influence. Well, I, you find his influence. You find, you find, oh, look, there are things that he created and they're functioning as he wills them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have the nature that he imbues in them, right? So you are encountering not the being of God, even though he's here, you're only encountering his influence. So to you and to me, it seems like God is makif, but he's actually not. So this is what we mean. When, when you can find something here, you don't call it makif. When you can't find something here, but you can, but you can find the influence of that thing here, you call it. You can't find electricity. You see the influence. Right. So there is a way in which one could think of that. One could think of electricity being makif to like the innate human experience. Yes, that's not an unreasonable thing. And the Rebbe actually uses that analogy. Um, so what we say is this: there are things which are objectively makif, meaning they are somewhere else. And they need to be in somewhere else. They cannot be here. But at the same time, right? So here is not a clea, cannot contain them. But at the same time, they can influence things. And they do influence things here. But then there is a kind of what we'll call a subjective makif, which is 
that you as being a native of here, you as being an inhabitant of the created reality, are incapable of perceiving or sensing God being here. But you are capable of sensing God's influence. And therefore, to you, it seems like God is makif. So when we say that God is makif, we really just mean that God is hidden. We don't mean that God is somewhere else. When we say that God surrounds the world, what do we mean? We mean that he is hiding his infinite being, not that his infinite being is somewhere else. Okay, now, here's the problem. We also had this phrase that he's makif milamila. He is makif from above. Now that above makes sense in the classic form of makif, because what does that mean? That means makif means it's not here, but it influences here. Okay, and if you're having an influence on me, you are in some sense higher than me and above me, right? There's kind of a hierarchical structure, right? So if over there is influencing over here, in some sense over there is higher than here, but it's two kind of senses, right? So we would think of the brain, which houses the mind, as higher than the feet, right? Chassidus, by the way, points out that this hierarchy is not absolute and that in certain senses, the feet would be higher than the brain. Right? Think, for example, how running affects your mental state. And in that sense, the influence is working backwards, right? So there's an idea that there is no absolute hierarchy, but relative to any particular issue, there's a hierarchy. So the higher place would be where the influencer is, where the mashpia is, and then, you know, because they can't be where, the, where, where they're influencing, so it's a different space, and it's considered above because they're the, the one exuding the power. What? That's so feminist. Where? Because, like, the Kabbalah is really higher. Maybe. Okay. But if we're saying by God, that's the thing. If we're saying that by God, God is makif just simply in the sense that we cannot perceive his infinite being. We just are able to perceive the effect of his being, the influence of his being on our reality, even though his being is fully here. Then what does he mean that it's milamila from above? Like, where's the above? There's no above. And so for this, we actually have a different idea. There is a principle in Hasidus that that which is hidden is higher than that which is revealed. There's a different, this is, in other words, I'm using now the notion of higher or above in a different sense. Let me explain to you what I mean. A person thinks and a person speaks. Thought is hidden. It's only available to the thinker. Speech is revealed. It is available to anyone else, Right? Thought is higher than speech. Why do we, so I would say that thought is higher than speech. And thought is higher than speech, it not, is intrinsically bound up with the fact that only I can know my thoughts, but everybody can know my words, my spoken words. And the reason for this is that when we, here when we say that something is higher, we meet what we mean to say, um, is that thing in its more, as it is more true to itself. And by lower, we mean the way, right, the way it, it moves away from itself, it presents itself. So any notion of presenting myself or making myself available is in a certain sense moving away from myself. Just one second. 
So in this sense, higher is more authentic and lower doesn't necessarily mean it's not authentic. It just means it's moving away from that authentic space. Now, if you completely, we would say that, you know, if, 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 if what you're presenting yourself in no way reflects who you really are, then that's already a lie. That's already corruption. That's a different idea. Okay. So the thing is like this, if God is not making his true infinite being, if God's true infinite being right, is not really revealed, and what is revealed is simply the influence his infinite being has on our reality. So in that sense, his infinite being is higher, it's more authentic than the influence we perceive. So it doesn't mean that God is in a different space. It means that our sense of God's infinite is less authentic than the real infinite because the, our sense of God's infinite is simply how the infinite affects us. Whereas the more authentic infinite is the actual you know, infinite unlimited being of God who's having the effect. Now, but where is the unlimited being of God? Here, he doesn't have to be somewhere else, right? Because he's, he's unlimited. He doesn't have the restrictions of where, where he has to be in order to be able to function to be, right? You know, can't put a candle underwater. God doesn't have that problem. He could be anywhere. So now let's summarize. What does it mean that God is makif milamila? It means God's infinite being is hidden and all we sense is the effect of his infinite being. And therefore, his infinite being, which is hidden, is the more authentic, the kind of truer sense of God than the effect that we are perceiving. God being makif milamayla means that even though God is present here with his infinite being, we are all, the infinite being is not something we can perceive. We only perceive the effect of his infinite being. And because of that, the infinite being is higher, is more authentic than what we are perceiving. And that's what we mean when we say that he's makif milamayla. Now, this is very difficult to understand because I, how do you make sense of the fact that in this pitcher of water, and the pitcher of water is limited. I want to let's talk about it. the pitcher of water is limited, right? It is only so big. It has a very defined texture, right? It's made of certain materials. It makes certain noises, right? I can't like do this and get it to like sing opera. It won't work, right? It doesn't have the capacity to produce opera sounds when I do that, right? It is limited in every aspect of its being. How can we say that God's infinite being really is present in every, in, in this thing that would mean that there's infinite being permeating every finite aspect of this being. How does that make sense? Simply, one second, simply saying we don't see it is not, a, is not an explanation. We've defined our terms. We don't understand it, right? In other words, when I think about thought and speech, I understand like speech is like, has a whole nother order of being, right? You actually have to go and speak, right? Thinking happens in your mind. But to say that there's an infinite being, how can the infinite being be present in such a way that it, it, it literally is present in every limited aspect, but the limited aspects stay limited and cannot perceive the limited being? The, the unlimited being, right? And so the, the Al-Tabi uses an analogy in Tanya. This is a difficult analogy. I'm going to try and explain the analogy to the best of my abilities, and then that will be the end of this part of the class. He used the analogy... Um, 
there's actually two analogies. We're going to focus on, on the simple one. We use the analogy of seeing something, seeing a physical object. It's necessary that it's a physical object. Okay. When you see a physical object, or more accurately, when you're looking at a physical object, I want to use that terminology. When you're looking at a physical object, that object exists in two places. It exists out there. Let's say, for instance, I'm looking at that green cup. It exists there, but it also exists in my mind. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I want to contrast this, for instance, like, you know those like things where like they say like, like count the basketballs and then afterwards they say, did you see the gorilla? And you're like, no, I didn't see the gorilla, right? Okay. So it was there, out there, but it was never reproduced in your mind. When, you're, when you are looking at something, it both the original is there and also there is a reproduced version in your mind. Yes? Okay. We're going to talk about the version in your mind right now. Is any part of that thing that you are looking at devoid of your conscious thought? No. It couldn't be, right? Your conscious, right? Because again, I'm not talking about the thing out there that you're looking at. I'm talking about when you look at it, yours also in your mind. The one that's in your mind, right? Every little aspect of that is just really an act of your conscious thought, right? So your conscious thought completely permeates every aspect of the thing you're looking at. That makes sense? Okay, now, if you are looking at an inanimate object, like a cup, does it still remain an inanimate object in your, in your, in your mind? And again, I'm looking at that cup. So there's the cup that's physically out there, and then there's the cup that's in my mind by looking at it. That cup that in my mind is permeated in every aspect of its being, the one in my mind, with, but, but it itself is not conscious thought, is it? It's an inanimate object. So this is interesting. You have an inanimate object permeated with conscious thought without that inanimate object becoming a conscious being. So you have something that contains something completely beyond itself without it actually in any way having any part of it changing because of that. It's a very interesting analogy, right? Again, when I'm looking at something, and I get, you have to, you have to like do what's called metacognition, you have to think about your own thought processes. When I'm looking at something, it looks like I'm looking at this thing out there, but the thing out there, now I'm looking at that pink water bottle. When I'm looking at that thing, the thing that I'm actually experiencing in my conscious thought is a creation of my own conscious thought, right? So it's, it's literally every aspect of its existence is my conscious thought, and yet it's not conscious thought, it's an animate object. So if I, right, so if I, so, so the conscious thought is present, the present in the, the thing that I'm looking at, but in no way does the thing that I, like, like for instance, if I want to know what conscious thought is, right? I can't like think about the cup and look at the cup and keep looking at the cup and from there figure out what conscious thought is because the cup is just an animate object. So it's permeated with, con it's permeated with conscious thought, but it is actually itself on its own terms, devoid of conscious thought. And so the conscious thought is there, permeating it, without it actually being 
evident at all. But the effect is evident, which is how is there possible for there to be a cup in my mind if I'm not think, if I'm not looking at it, which is a product, which is an act of conscious thought. Okay, now it gets a little bit weirder. And the weirder part is, is there a difference between looking at something and hallucinating? This he doesn't say explicitly in, in Tanya, it's alluded to in, in one phrase. Is there a difference between looking at something and hallucinating? Not, like, not in your brain. Not, exactly, not in your mind. It's not in your mind, but there is a difference because in your hallucinating, there's nothing outside that objectively correlates. So here's the thing. In some sense, this is what's really weird. It's not merely that when I'm looking at the cup, there's the cup as it exists in my mind. Because I'm looking at the cup. The cup that exists in my mind is that cup. It's just, it's just the, the um, certain qualities of that cup. The shape of the cup. The color of the cup. Right? So it's not really there's two things. Right? Because if I were to say that there's two things, right? like, like a hallucination. Like I, 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 I see, a, I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at a tree and I see gorilla. Those are two things, right? But what, in as much as my sight is working objectively, right? The thing that I'm seeing is that, right? Does that make sense? So what it means is that in some sense, the cup, not its actual physicality, but... What it's, it's what's called its dumus, its likeness, its shape and its color are objectively being permeated with my conscious thought and yet there's no actual, it doesn't actually become a conscious being in any way. Now the reason why this is important is, and this is going to be the difference between us and God, our ability to consciously relate to things, if it has any objectivity to it, is receptive. I can see things that are there. I can hear things that have been said. I can understand things that are themselves intelligible. If I start seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that were never said, making sense of things that are actually unintelligible, what does that mean? I'm hallucinating, I'm delusional, right? There's something broke, broken with me, right? God has a fundamental difference to us, which is that for God it's reverse. If God sees something, then what, what does that mean? It, he makes it exist. If God, if something makes sense to God, that's what makes it intelligible, right? God's, God's for lack of words, subjective awareness of things is the, is creates objectivity. It doesn't receive from objectivity, right? There's an inversion between us and God. Things objectively are, and hopefully our subjectivity aligns with that. For God, God relates to things however he does, and that's what makes objective reality. What that would mean is like this. If God decides to look at a cup, what happens? There's a cup. And that cup is literally God looking at the cup. That's what that, that, that's the, that, that, that's a, and so the cup is filled with God's infinite being because it's God looking and God looks in an infinite way. But does the cup become any less of a cup because of that? And is there any aspect of the cup that God is not looking at? And now what if God looks at the cup moving? And what if God looks at the cup breaking? And so literally, right? And does God need to be somewhere else for him to be God? So God is 
Right? So in, in some sense, all of reality is God being God, looking at things that makes the things where they are, but he's not looking at them from outside and observing them. He's relating to them where he is and then become those things. But they are those things because they're literally the product of his, of his relating to them. And so, and his relating to them, if he's relating to them, he is infinite. What's but, that called? Like God's called this God <coughs> that creates things. We'll call it, we'll call it divine light, if you want to call it that. It doesn't really matter. So what that means is now, um, is there such a thing that is not permeated with God's being? Do the things themselves, right? Is there any aspect of the being that are not permeated with God's infinite being? No. Do those things therefore in any way become godly? No. So God is just as much here as the picture is. But what do I experience? The picture. And if I am insightful, the way in which the picture is a clea for godliness. And if I'm a little bit more insightful, the way in which God affects the picture. But do I actually have any sense of the infinite being of God who is looking at the picture, picture from within the picture that makes the picture be what it is and therefore every aspect of the picture is God's just relating to the picture? No, I have no sense of that. And as long as I don't have any sense of that, should I be worshiping the picture? No. No, okay. But considering that is the objective truth of the picture, I probably should only use the picture as God wishes it to be used. As a picture. Because that's all God. That's, because that there's, that, that's, that's all it really is. But how are we able to see it as something else then? That is a good question, which is a different discussion in Hasidus. Okay. So that kind of roughly outlines that train of thought. Um, and you realize that if you then apply that to your own being and not the picture, and you, and you allow that to like sink in and affect you emotionally, you will have all sorts of existential crises and deep, profound emotions. It's different with a person, though. No, it's no different than a person. Well, 